Welcome to Eastridge Today with Steve Jameson, lead pastor of Eastridge Church in Issaquah and West Seattle. We invite you to worship with us at EastridgeTodayRadio.com or in person every weekend. Today, we'll hear a powerful message by our family pastor, Pastor Dan Mateer. We are going through this uh, series called Centered, really focusing on what is our center, asking ourselves honestly to evaluate our lives and evaluate where is my focus, where is my center. And today uh, we're talking about Christ-centered families. The journey from wanting to be a parent to becoming a parent is this enormous mind-blowing trip. It's an unbelievable experience, right? And it's hard to really explain because if you're not a parent and you're planning to be a parent, you think in your head, I'm going to nail this. I've got this, right? I've got it. And why? Because you have to nail it, right? It's not like adopting a hamster from the pet store, right? You can't just go get another one if it doesn't go well. This is someone's life you're dealing with. And in school, you can get 80%, 90%. You're getting A's and B's. You're doing golden. But you know, as a potential parent, you can't get 90% of somebody's well-being, safe, safety, health. All You can't get 90% right and call it good. You've got to be in 100% or you don't get in the game at all. At least that's what you think. That's what you feel. Then you find out the baby's on the way and it starts to get real and you go, okay. And you start to watch some videos, you read some books, you take some classes, you get prepared, but there's nothing that prepares you for the moment that you are handed that little baby. And it occurs to you for the first time, you have never met this person before in your life. And you're now totally responsible for them. And the moment they hand it to you, you realize, I can't do this. I am not prepared for this, right? You're suddenly just overwhelmed. And I don't know what it is about that moment that makes you realize this is a bigger deal than I'm prepared for. And then the next day, sometimes it's not even 24 hours, they walk into your hospital room and they say, okay, time to leave. Time to take the baby and put it in the car you drove here in, go home and raise a family. And you think, no, (laughs) really, what are we supposed to do next? You got to be joking, right? But they say, no, I'm serious. We need to make room for more babies. You need to leave, get out of here and go figure it out, even though you've never even seen a baby this young in your whole life. And so you take the baby and you put it in your car and you drive out on the same street you drove there in, except it looks totally different now and everything is scary and things are moving too fast and people are zooming by you and they're honking at you and tailgating you just because you're going 10 miles an hour. But they don't understand you've got a baby in the car that needs to be taken care of. So you get a baby on board sticker and you put it on your car. But nobody respects the baby on board sticker. They don't even pay attention to it. So you just live every day overwhelmed, feeling like you're going to drown. And that feeling lasts for about the next 20 years. In my experience, that's as far as I've gotten. I've got three kids, they're 19, 16, and 12. And being a dad has been a really uh, amazing growth journey, but also a journey of humility for me. 
Uh, there was another moment that I kind of realized the weight of what I had gotten into as a parent. And it was after I had uh, developed a roll of film, because that's how we did it back in the day. And I got these pictures and I was looking through them, you know, between two weeks and six months after I'd actually taken the picture. And there was one picture of me holding my little, I don't know, six-month-old, nine-month-old daughter, Julia. But when I looked at this picture, I just went, oh, wow, I'm the dad, right? And of course I'm the dad, but it hit me in a way, that way had never caught me before, that one day she would look at that picture and go, yep, that's my dad, right? That that person would look at this picture and I'd be the dad. And the reason this hit me so much is because when I was growing up, we had a family photo album. Remember family photo albums? You didn't have a thousand photos back then. You had a few. And one of the pictures in my family photo album was my dad in a white t-shirt just like this holding my sister. And when I looked at him holding that baby, I thought, yeah, he knows what he's doing. He's got things under control, right? He's the dad, because that's my dad. That's the dad I knew. But now I was in that role, and I realized I did not feel like I thought he felt in that moment. Parents, can you relate to this? You know, this idea of being a Christ-centered family is oftentimes a struggle, because we can talk about and even laugh about being unprepared uh, for raising a baby. You know, I made mistakes. I put a temporary tattoo on my baby when she was four days old. <laughs> Thought it would be funny. It wasn't funny. You should not do that. I made other mistakes too. You know, when we talk about health, talk about, uh, you know, teaching them to read, when we talk about uh, teaching them to ride a bike, yeah, we want to get those things right, but really... Those are, I mean, you know, those are important, but if you don't get it all perfect, it, they'll figure it out. But when you talk about being a Christ-centered family, when passing on to them the truth of who their creator is and what their relationship is to him, that is a huge responsibility. And we know we don't get it right. And let me just get uh, the elephant in the room out. There is no perfect family. I know you didn't do this all right. And I know that there are struggles that in your family, mistakes that have been made, damage that has been done, things that you regret, things that happened to you that you wish didn't happen. I know that is because it's in every single family. There's brokenness, there's damage, there's hurt, there's pain in every family. So when we come to this idea of being a Christ-centered family, for a lot of us, let me say all of us, there's a little bit of shame attached to that. That we know, ah, oh, I don't want to talk about this because my family, no. Either the family that I'm a son or daughter in, the family that I'm a mom or dad in, or the family I'm a grandmother, grandfather, whatever attachment you is, there's a little bit of a cringe factor there, a pain attached to it, a regret, a shame attached to family because we know it didn't go like we hoped it would go. But here's the good news. Here is the good news, the gospel news that God is not a God of shame. He's not a God of condemnation. He's a God of hope and a future and a God of repair and restoration and even resurrection, even for families where mistakes have been made. Let's go to the scripture in Hebrews 13. I just want to read this blessing that was prayed from the author to the people he was writing to in Hebrews 13. He says, now may the God of peace 
equip you with every good thing for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. Not through my, my own strength, not through my decisions, my, not through me having figured it out, but by the power of Jesus in our life. And this is a blessing that's prayed over people who serve in the church, who uh, evangelize in the community, but it's a blessing that is first and foremost to our first place of ministry. And what is our first place of ministry? The place that Jesus called us before everything else to our own family. Jesus has promised that he can and will, as we submit to him in humility, equip us for every good thing to lead well, to become what he created us to be, what he hoped us to be, a Christ-centered family by his power and his goodness. So we're going to dive into this today. We're going to talk about how do we form or how do we know we have formed a Christ-centered family. Well, collective identities, cultures, they're formed by a few things. They're formed by hardships, how we deal with hardships. They're formed by celebrations, what we celebrate together, and by sacrifices, what we sacrifice for. So if you're taking notes, these are the three questions that we're going to dive into in terms of how do I create a Christ-centered family. Number one, where do we turn in times of crisis? How do we deal with hardships? Where do we turn in times of crisis? Number two, what are the stories that we celebrate? And number three, what do we sacrifice in order to gain? Would you pray with me? Just ask God to to touch us as we open our hearts to him. Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place. We invite you in our midst, even those who are worshiping with us uh, online, West Seattle, Lord, all of us, we open our hearts to you. And as we open up your words, I pray, God, that your spirit would speak to us, that you would push away the voice of condemnation and shame and help us to be receptive to what you want us to do to build a Christ-centered family in our own hearts, our own life, and our own circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to put it up on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, Matthew 7, 24 is where we're going to uh, read. This is from the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus teaches his people uh, how we should and do react in times of hardship. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house Upon the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So Jesus is describing here two different kinds of lives, one that's built on his teaching, uh, listening, hearing, and doing what he's taught, and one that is not. One is built on solid ground and one is built on shifting ground. So uh, if you were listening there, let me just ask you a little question, a little review. Which house did the storm fall upon? 
It fell on both, didn't it, right? Jesus could have said, if you build your life on me and my teaching, you're going to be covered, you're going to be sheltered, you're going to be protected, and no storms will touch that house, but the other storm is going to be hit by a hurricane. That's not what he said. He said there's two foundations, but the storm falls on both, right? And, and this is something that's important for us to get uh, in our minds because we can think, even if we don't voice it out loud, that if I'm doing everything right in my life, if I'm getting it all good with God, with, in alignment with his word, in my family, then no storm is going to fall on us that we're going to be protected. And when that storm does come, the winds come and the rains come, we could think, God, why is this happening? Why, why are you doing this? We've tried to be in line with what you're doing. We've done everything you said. Why is the storm coming? Jesus didn't say that no storms would come. He had said, when the storm comes, the house on the rock will stand firm. Storms come to everybody. To all of us. I've had to put this into a practice uh, this weekend. Uh, we had our, uh, our first uh, car accident in the family with a teenage driver. One of my daughters got in a car accident. She's fine. She's okay. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I appreciate those who have been concerned and, and reaching out. She's doing great, but it was a storm. It's not what you want. It's not how you wanted it to go. And in the times when the storm comes... It's time for you to examine how you react, right? And the question that determines, are we a Christ-centered family, is where do we turn when the storm comes? Do we turn to Jesus or do we turn to worry? Do we turn to fear? Do we turn to anger? Do we turn to bitterness? Do we turn to substances or self-comfort or something besides Jesus? And it's not as easy as it sounds because when we're sitting here in church on Sunday morning, it's easy to say, where do we turn in times of storm? Jesus. But when the storm hits and you feel that pain, it's not as easy. But those storms can actually serve a purpose of kind of blowing away the debris, blowing away the clutter, and helping us find out where is my foundation really? What am I rooted in? Second thing I want to point out in this story is Jesus uses the metaphor of a house, right? He's talking about lives and he's talking about people building their personal faith on him, but he uses the metaphor of a house, who lives in a house? People live in a house. Families live in a house, right? Now, an individual can live in a house, and often they do. You know, you can live in a house by yourself, but that's usually the exception. Normally, it's a family that lives in a house. And we as independent Americans go, oh, yeah, but that's kind of a, a superfluous detail. It doesn't really matter to the story. But to Jesus' culture and generation, I think that they probably understood this concept a lot better than we do, that there is a household component to what he's saying. Now, hear me clearly. He's talking to people in their own faith, in their individual faith. And you cannot borrow your faith from your mom. And you cannot borrow faith from grandma and show up before Jesus and go, well, I didn't ever, you know, accept your gift of salvation, but dad did. So we're good, right? That's not how it works. We are all accountable before Jesus in our own selves. But when a storm hits one member of the family, you know this, the storm hits everybody in the family. Isn't that right? When a storm hits mom, the son feels it. 
And when the storm hits the daughter, the dad feels it. And when storm even hits grandma, everybody in the house feels it. In that family, in the household, feels it, right? This household component, I think, was intentional, what Jesus was saying. But here's the good news. Whether you're the mom or the dad or the son or the daughter, when the storm hits, anyone in the family, anyone in the house can answer this question, where do we turn in times of crisis and say, we need to turn to Jesus. Because if you're a dad in in your family, boy, step up, dads. That is my message to you. Step up and say, hey, we're going to become a Christ-centered family. And moms, step up and say, we're going to be a Christ-centered family. But even if you're the daughter or you're the son or you're the granddaughter or the grandfather, whatever your role is in the family, you have the ability to influence your family's collective identities and to be the voice and to be the light that says, let's turn to Jesus. Hardships are here, but let's go to him. Third thing I want to point out in this story is, is uh, he uses this metaphor is Jesus says, uh, uses these verb tenses that I think are uh, important for how we process them. Look again with that ver- ver- first uh, verse. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, hears these words and puts them into practice. He's speaking about something that is going to happen or is happening right now. He's not talking about anyone who heard these words of mine and put them into practice, right? Now, we should do both, right? And, you know, we're we're kind of moving through time. But here is the important piece of this. The message of the gospel is not about what we've done. It's about what we do. It's not about the mistakes we made. It's not about the pain we caused. It's not about the damage that was inflicted. It's about where do I turn today? Because all of us have sin and fall short of the glory of God. But the message of the gospel is that there is righteousness, not through our own work, but through the work of the cross. And as we say, Jesus, I submit my life to you. From here forward, I put myself under your covering. There we are saved. So when we look at building a foundation, this, the, the enemy wants to whisper this message. Not you, though. Not you. Your family is way too broken. Your damage is way too deep. But the message of the gospel is, yes, you. Yes, you are invited to build on solid foundation. Maybe you built deep on that sinking sand, on that weak foundation. Maybe your house has already fallen with a crash. Maybe it's fallen with a crash a dozen times. But build. Build a house on the rock. Build on that solid foundation. That's his invitation. That's his desire. That is what he has for you, for your family to become that Christ-centered family. Second question that forms our collective identity. Are we Christ-centered? What stories do we celebrate? Stories form collective identities. Think about us as a nation. We have these celebrations, holidays throughout the year, and a lot of our national holidays are attached to a story that we want told, right? We want it to be told over and over. We just had a holiday this last week with uh, Martin Luther King's birthday. 
Why do we have that? Because we need a day off during January and didn't have one? I, I hope that's not the reason. The reason is we said as a nation, we want to make sure that we don't forget this story, right? We want this told every year. The 4th of July, we want to tell a story. Thanksgiving, Veterans Day, we want to tell a story and remind us as a culture, don't forget about this. Now, we could argue, are we doing that well or not? But the point is we're trying to do it. You as a family, you have the same things. You have stories that you celebrate. And celebrate might be the wrong word because sometimes the stories that we celebrate are stories of pain and failure. They're stories of of regret, of damage, but they're stories that are repeated that form collective identity. Uh, Stories form our identity like, I, I think, much more than we give them credit for. When I was growing up, my family was known in our community as kind of a quirky family, uh, kind of unique, a bunch of individuals. There are five kids in my family. I have three older brothers. And uh, my three older brothers all went to the same high school as me, Lake Washington High School in Kirkland. And one of my brothers um, was sitting out on the grass on a nice day, and he had his shoes off. And for some reason, needed to run inside real quick and uh, just... Not, not for very long, just go inside the building. And it's against the rules at high school to have your shoes off inside, right? Did you know this? It is. So you can't do that. And so he was like busted immediately, sent to the principal's office, given whatever detention or something because he came inside with no shoes on. Now, my older brother is a very justice-oriented individual and kind of a stubborn guy. And he felt like the punishment did not fit the crime in this circumstance that he'd been treated unfairly. So he went home and took an old pair of shoes and cut the soles out of the bottoms of his shoes so that the next day when he showed up to school, technically he had shoes on, But underneath, he was barefoot so that he could show his crime was a victimless crime and that he didn't need to be punished in the way that he was. Well, this story kind of got around. And eight years later, I showed up at Lake Washington High School. They were long gone. And my second period teacher was calling Roll and she was like, Mateer, Dan, do you have a brother named Bill? Did he cut the soles out of his shoes? Uh, like 10 years ago, and I was like, wow, wow, yeah, he did. How do you know that story? And then a couple periods later, the teacher was like, Mateer, Dan, let me see the bottoms of your feet, right? Like this story, it became part of our identity as a family, like who we were, because it had been told over and over, and it was even kind of imprinted on me a decade later. Stories are powerful. Stories are important. The stories, stories that are told about us, but more importantly, the stories that we tell each other. So when we say, are we a Christ-centered family? An important question to ask is, what stories do we tell? Let's take a look at another passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, this is uh, one of the most repeated passages in the Old Testament. Um, in the Hebrew culture around Jesus' time, this would have been uh, something that would have been repeated every day as a prayer or a reminder. Uh, it's called the Shema, because in Hebrew, that's the, how the words start, how the passage starts. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. The command here is to the people of Israel. This is a sermon Moses is preaching as they're going into the promised land. He says, repeat these, tell these stories. Don't forget you were slaves in Egypt and you were set free by a mighty and powerful hand of God. Don't forget that he miraculously split the Red Sea so you could go across on dry land and Pharaoh's armies and your pursuers were drowned behind you. Don't forget his goodness. Don't forget his commands. Don't forget his love for you. Talk about him all the time, not just on feast days and holidays, but when you get out of bed. And when you go to bed and when you walk along the road and when you're sitting down to eat and when you walk in and out of your door, talk about these things all the time so that you don't forget them. But the next passage is unfortunate. Uh, He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to give your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build. Houses with, filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And the sad thing is, as we read this story, it does not take very long before generations come that did forget. And stop telling those stories. And stop reminding each other of God's goodness, his power, his majesty, his grace and love. And they've stopped becoming God-centered families because they stopped telling the story. So the, the prompt for us is let's continue to tell stories of God's goodness, of his faithfulness, of his generosity and his love. There's a story in my family we love to tell. And if you know me or been hanging around with us very long, you might have even heard this story. It was a few years ago when my daughters were little. They were like six and four. And they got it in their head. They had separate rooms, but they wanted to share a room. Now, I know that's backwards. Usually, uh, you're like, you make them share a room because there's no room uh, in the house. But my daughters are so sweet. They just wanted to uh, be together. That's since gone away. They no longer want to share a room. (laughs) But at the time, they really wanted to share a room, but, but we couldn't fit both of their beds in the room, right? It was too small. So we needed bunk beds. Have you ever tried to buy bunk beds? I don't know, like, why, how, how they're so expensive. Like, you can pick up a bed, it seems like, on Craigslist for 20 bucks, right? But bunk beds are like four or $500 even used, right? I mean, they're just not making enough bunk beds, I guess, supply and demand. Maybe it's changed now. But at the time, we couldn't find them for anything that was within our budget. And our, my daughter was so sad. She really wanted to move in with her sister. And so there was a garage sale, a community garage sale. And so Julia, six years old, says, can we go look for bunk beds? Can we find some bunk beds? You ever see bunk beds at a garage sale? Pretty rare. But Rebecca took them out and said, okay, yeah, you know, let's, let's, let's pray. <laughs> I, I, let's pray that God will bring us bunk beds. And, and but Julia's like, well, but how much could we pay? Because she knew. We found them all the time. They were just too much. And Rebecca's like, I don't know, maybe $50. Like that would be a, a price we could pay. So they pray, they pray for these bunk beds and, and they say, God, bring us bunk beds for $50. And they go out and like the second or third garage sale they come to, guess what's there? 
bunk beds, right? Nice ones, wooden and not the, not the kind of rickety, like uh, squeaky metal ones, but really nice, beautiful bunk beds. And Rebecca's like, okay, cool. But how much are they? And the guy says, 50 bucks. And they're like, yes, God answered our prayer, like $50 bunk beds. That's about all the time we have for today. But if you want to listen to the whole thing, you can visit us at eastridgetodayradio.com and tune in next week for another installment of Eastridge Today.